Overnights with Martin Kellner. There is a place I'd give the world to see Where the music's softly playing And the rhythm's gently swaying Underneath the stars in a million bars Guitars are softly saying Mexico Marvellous, the sound of Long John Baldry uh, introducing our guest from Campeche in Mexico. Uh, it's a very good evening to Mr. John Bonfilio. Uh, John, thanks uh, ever so much for joining us. No problem, Martin. I was sorry to hear this week that you are apparently one of the latest victims of Havana Syndrome. <laughs> well, it feels like it. I mean, we've talked about Havana Syndrome uh, once or twice uh, on this uh, slot, and I know my uh, colleague uh, Howard Hughes has talked about it as well. And you, one of the symptoms of Havana Syndrome is that you can't find the word that you're looking for. Also, you have sort of balance problems a little bit, and uh, you sort of memory. And I thought, well, I'm suffering from all that. But I think in my case, it's probably age rather than Havana Syndrome. Um, but, you know, it's an issue that uh, remains uh, a hot topic, doesn't it? Especially amongst the uh, sort of espionage fraternity. Tell us about the story of uh, Ana Montes. Yeah, this is, I mean, this has got uh, me thinking a little bit about the whole spy community and um, things that we know and things that we don't know and things that the spy community never admits. Because obviously the Havana syndrome as a precursor to Ana Montes is... is uh, maybe just as a recap, obviously it's a series of medical symptoms, as you said, which relate to headaches, nausea, cogn cognitive difficulties and mm. so on. But one of the things that's interesting about it is that actually the very spy community that fundamentally knows that this thing exists also argues that it is a mass psychosis, publicly argues that it is a mass psychosis, because it's not actually in their interest to admit that there is a foreign power going around attacking their their diplomatic community around the world with this sound weapon of sorts. And one of the reasons why it's in the news recently is because of the spread of Havana syndrome, which began in Havana, but now it exists across the world. Hundreds of people worldwide have been affected. In fact, one uh, one uh, diplomatic uh, professional from the U.S. said recently that the only thing we know about the numbers is that is that we don't actually know the numbers. And then this individual, Ana Montez, in what is one of the, I mean, certainly a massively high-profile spy mm. story, uh, which described as the most damaging spy in U.S. history. She was released um, just last month. She was a, the Pentagon's defense analyst in the in the 80s and was arrested just after 2001, after, not after the Twin Towers, not because she was related to it, but just because there was a mass clampdown at the time. And she was done for conspiracy to deliver defense secrets to Cuba and was given 25 years in prison, of which she served 21. Uh, but actually, what's interesting about that, in the same way as Havana Syndrome, is it's not what we know, it's what we don't know that is the most uh, telling of all. I mean, in particular, she never did it. She categorically never received money from Cuba. She did it purely on ideological reasons. And perhaps most interesting of all, once they caught her and once she was convicted, the messages, the shortwave messages that, that uh, were sent to Cuba never stopped. They continued to be sent. So there was another really high profile mole, mole. And in a curiouser and curiouser, Alice in Wonderland sense, um, somebody else was then arrested who has never been named. So we do, we, we've never found out who the other massively high profile mole at the defense agency at the Pentagon in the US was, which brings up the question, 
who were they and why was that name never released? What was being protected there? So just this whole smoke and mirrors of the international spy world is absolutely mind boggling. It is. And I mean, Havana Syndrome, just for people who've never, ever heard of it, it's uh, it's the sort of allegation that microwaves, if you like, are used to alter the function of your brain or to damage the function of your brain uh, used by foreign powers, be it uh, Russia, China, Cuba, uh, against uh, uh, against spies. Yeah, which generate traumatic brain injuries, some kind of sound wave, some kind of uh, microwave weapon, which in- interestingly was actually developed first by, from what we know, by the US in the 50s and 60s and then was, was dumped as a non-viable weapon. One of the big questions about these microwave weapons today is that the kind of sounds that all these diplomats of, from the US and Canadian Embassy in Havana describe would require a massive object to be deployed in a very blunt way. Um, so what seems to have happened is that some foreign agency has actually moved on the technology really very quickly and is able to very specifically deploy this weapon in a mobile sense to much more specific locations to the extent that some individuals at the US Embassy actually said that as soon as they moved, if they just walked away from where it was that they they were standing or sitting five, ten meters, they would stop hearing this what sounded like a really loud cricket sound and then they went back into that space, then they would hear it again. So in this sort of two-generation, 50-year period, it seems that whatever this weapon is that we don't really understand, but is certainly, almost certainly being deployed internationally in a sort of, um, I guess, post-Cold War uh, context, is certainly devastating and has absolutely decimated, if not the, the functions of the U.S. diplomatic corps, certainly the morale of that, of those departments. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, something else we, we've talked about uh, a fair bit over the uh, last few months is uh, Bolsonaro. He's now in exile, if you like, in the United States. And uh, it's been revealed that he had a very, very sweet tooth. Yeah, this revelation is particularly interesting because normally the spend on a uh, on a Brazilian president's credit card is embargoed for a 100 years. And Lula da Silva has removed that embargo because of the sheer scale of what Jair Bolsonaro, the recently uh, um, recently passed on president of Brazil, spent on that card, which includes get a load of this. £9,000 at a single bakery in one day, £11,500 on a single visit to a petrol station in Brazil, um, and £17,000 at a relatively run-of-the-mill restaurant in Sao Paulo, where the most expensive dish is a serving of chicken and chips. And in order to spend £17,000, <laughs> you have to order 2,000 servings of said uh, chicken and chips. I would like to not be talking about Bolsonaro as much as we do, Martin, but he really is the gift that just ke- keeps on giving, and it, it's just impossible to avoid him. And the very fact that he is now this sort of quasi-celebrity in Miami, that whenever he goes out on the street, uh, he's greeted high fives and, and fist bumps from anybody who, who waits outside his, um, outside his abode, which is currently also, interestingly, uh, the home of Jose Aldo, an ex MMA Brazilian fighter who 
who lives in Miami and is considered one of the, the best of all time. And also the fact that he's clearly, he arrived in Miami on a diplomatic visa just before his term expired. And he's obviously intent on staying there. He's just applied for a six month tourist visa. He has no interest at all in returning to Brazil because he knows what is waiting for him there, which is basically uh, a judicial process, likely conviction and jail time. Yeah. Uh, on to sport now. Um, now, until very recently, there was a, a huge picture of uh, Marcello Bielsa uh, in an art shop in uh, in Wakefield. It was a big, massive, big portrait of Marcello Bielsa. Obviously, not there anymore. Now he's gone, and we're uh, we're always fascinated to know uh, wh- where he might turn up next. Um, one of the options seemed to be Everton, but his um, his demands for the way he was going to do that job um, led to him not getting that. Uh, and one of the other possibilities was the Mexican national team. What's, uh, what's the latest on Bielsa? Yeah, one of the things that's fascinating is about Bielsa, as you say, is the fact that any job he takes is very much going to be on his terms mm. and on nobody else's. And we saw that with the Everton uh, negotiations and this is very much what's taking place at the moment with the Mexican Football Federation in which there are a series of meetings I mean it's been backwards and forwards on whether he is going to be the next coach of the Mexican men's uh, national team he's playing a little bit hard to get there was uh, some rumours that he went to meet arch rivals the US men's team uh uh, federation earlier on in the week which uh, made everybody even crosser than they already were in Mexico but he's now apparently asking for 10 million dollars a year which is more than three times what his predecessor uh, received and uh, which is having a lot of people holding their heads in their hands and, and saying that obviously that that's not something that can be afforded but I think this what this gives the truth to is the crisis at the heart of Mexican football at the moment, that nobody, certainly not the powers that be, know what direction they want um, uh, the, the, the country's football, especially as regards the men's national team, uh, to go in. And they're scrabbling around to put a sticking plaster in the shape of a an international coach on a series of structural difficulties that Mexican football has. And, and I think, honestly, I think Marcelo Bielsa knows that. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's asking so much for it, because for the, for the position, because he knows that this is not a decorative position, that this is actually a root and branch reform of systems here, which he needs to undertake. And I guess in that sense, he's the right man for the job. But of course, he's going to be asking for top dollar if he is going to even countenance taking on this uh, somewhat poisoned chalice. Yeah, and of course it is crucial at the moment they do get someone to, you know, to do that reconstruction work that's needed because uh, the next World Cup, as we know, is in uh, North America, in Mexico, US and uh, Canada. Of course, and and Mexico, as as we know, with the hosting is going to automatically qualify. But can you imagine what would take place here if if Mexico underperforms in that context i mean for them to go out in the group stage of this last world cup was bad enough but to underperform to underrepresent themselves in front of their adoring uh, fanatical um, fans would be i mean almost it would cause it wouldn't just cause national outrage i think we're talking uh, that it would generally it would actually probably cause a series of social and civic and criminal issues on the streets of mexico 
Yeah, and uh, sadly, when that World Cup does arrive, no Long John Baldry around to uh, sing the th- <laughs> sing the theme song, which will be um, which will be a great loss. Uh, John, as always, thank you ever so much. Do appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk again soon. No problem. Take care. Get better. Good night. Thank you. There we go. Uh, John Bonfilio joining us from uh, Campeche in uh, in Mexico. Uh, thank you to Jack.